Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Every issue that leads to a wrongful conviction is present in this case. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We just wrapped up the incredible story of Evaristo Silas Jr., the man now in his 40s, convicted of murder at just 15, a crime he has always maintained he's innocent of. Of course, if you are yet to hear this story, time to hit that pause button, head on back and catch up. As I'm sure you're aware, I am in no way an expert when it comes to the law in any country let alone one I don't live in. I am merely a man producing a show from his children's toy room, (laughs) which is why after each one of these cases, we sit down and discuss them with the man they call the voice of reason. Michael Leonard is a defence attorney with decades of trial experience and a practising defence attorney from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois. So it's time to get Michael's opinion on the case of Evaristo Salas Jr. Here he is. Hey, Jack. How are you, sir? Well, I need to talk to you about something. Uh-oh. Um, I think, you know, we didn't have a discussion about your physical conditioning, you know, because you ran that 1.2 miles or so. You seem pretty out of breath, my friend. So maybe one of your Patreons can um, suggest a sprint program or something for you, you know? Come on now, mate. Come on. I'm putting my body I'm putting my body on the line for this show. You're just lucky I don't say, right, your turn now, Mr. Leonard. You're the attorney. I want to see what you would do for your client. Uh, your time would definitely be my time. Uh, that is for sure. <laughs> now, I'm not going to put any words in your mouth about this case that we're discussing, Evaristo Salas Jr. Uh, so as always, let's just get your first opinion on what you've heard. Absolutely absurd. I mean, it's so so disappointing. Because, you know, obviously we have a pretty large system, state and federal, and varies by state. 
and it can be such an uneven result depending on where you are and who represents you. But this case really seems to bring out kind of all the hallmarks of the problems with the system, you know, some of the systemic things that we see over and over in wrongful conviction type cases. So it's really disappointing to hear. And because when you when you lay out every little piece of it is just unsupported, right? And uh, it's really unfortunate that a reviewing court didn't do something about that. That's That really does surprise me even more. I mean, Junior has said to me that the judge completely just dismissed all of this new evidence that um, I think to anyone, whether you know anything about the law or not, would make you go, hold on a second, there's something that needs to be looked at here. Yeah, and, and I don't know the full procedural history, uh, but oftentimes, you know, they'll take it up through the state court system in which he was convicted uh, on a, you know, try to revisit based upon newly discovered evidence. Uh, but oftentimes people will take it to federal court, which gives them a better shake. So I'm curious as to whether they ever took it to federal court, which the, at least in theory, the idea is that it's, you know, hopefully a venue that's uh, uninfluenced by state concerns and maybe a little less biased, uh, maybe a little bit more professional, maybe better quality judges in theory. Um, so I would just wonder if he ever took it the federal route. Maybe that would have been his potentially better hand. I don't know. I've got this coming up very soon. He has gone federal and he said finally, because uh, there was three judges, I think he said, in, in this particular, um, they had a, a hearing about it. And he said finally the prosecution are finally being um, questioned over uh, firstly this supposed snitch who's come out since and, and said that he was made to lie. So it sounds like from what you're describing that they are in the federal appellate court out in California because what happens in our system is if you get to the appeal level in federal court and typically in state court, then you argue your case, oral argue it in a panel of three judges. And, you know, the fun and exciting and scary part of that is they can ask you whatever they want, whenever they want, right? So you're given a certain allocation of time, might be as little as 10 minutes, as much as 30. And those judges can pepper you with any question they want at any time, interrupt you, take over or whatever. So, it's kind of a fun experience to go through. It's a little nerve wracking, but that sounds great because, you know, any court from an appellate standpoint looking at this objectively would, you know, have grave concerns. And the great thing about this, and it's two sided coin here. The great thing is if they if they reverse this thing, if they vacate the conviction, there's no way he's going to be retried. Uh, but the sad part is he spent all this time incarcerated. He ain't getting that time back, right? And maybe, maybe he'll get a pittance of money recovery from the state, uh, although that's not certain. Uh, but, you know, one thing that's changed a lot in our system, a lot of these older cases, um, kind of the standards that were applied years and years ago are quite different now. And everything, and we'll get into this with with when you break down all the different areas and dissect them. But, you know, Things have really changed in terms of the view of eyewitness testimony, the view of forensic evidence, the trustworthiness of informants. That's all changed a lot. So when you get in a federal appellate court looking at that, they're going to have such a different viewpoint than the trial court did 20 years ago or the state court did when they when they allegedly reviewed this case. And, and the thing is, there's obviously so many question marks over this this case itself. 
not just this um, informant coming out, but they, they hypnotised one of the main witnesses and then failed to let anyone know that they did this because of the fact that that would have been thrown out because it's not admissible in court. Absolutely incredible. When you when I was listening to your show and you kind of teased us as listeners because you, you didn't disclose the fact right away, um, that was just absolutely remarkable. Number one, you know, there's a huge problem in our system, which has been recognised, that eyewitness testimony is very oftentimes unreliable. Yeah. So people have this idea in their heads that, oh, it's an eyewitness, so it must be true. And studies have shown, court cases have held, that oftentimes eyewitness testimony is incredibly unreliable. And there's a lot of reasons for it that make sense. You know, it's uh, the fact that you have such a brief period of time that you're in a heightened emotional state, they're not really looking at the person. And then the problem is is exacerbated by the fact when you're shown pictures or given information, then you may fill in the gaps with what you're fed by others, even if it's unintentional, right? So there was a big question mark already about the re- reliability of this eyewitness. And then when you get to the hypnosis part, which is just ridiculous, almost unheard of. I mean, I've I've never been involved in a case or heard of a case in my 30 or so years where hypnosis has ever been used, let alone found to be credible. And so, you know, to make an to make an identification under those circumstances is just so improbable and, and no court would allow that, which goes to the, the great point you made in your show. Really, the big problem was the, the non-disclosure of that. Okay, so even if that were to have happened, the hypnosis of course it had to be disclosed. The prosecutors had an obligation to disclose that. And that's just a clear breach of their ethical duties. That alone should have been a basis to overturn the case and, and grant him a new trial. Not only that, we have more issues again. I mean, then we look at the same lady, the, the partner of this guy, four days after this crime has happened, the truck where he was killed is in an impound, which she turns up to and she takes the car back, takes it away, has it cleaned and then sold. And the car had not even been looked over by police yet. They had not gone through that car, sweep that car for evidence. It was cleaned out and sold and got rid of. A report is actually created for rendering criminal assistance against her and it's sent to the prosecutor's office with a suggestion for charges and it goes away and she becomes their key witness. What is going on? Like I'm running out of words. I don't want to keep saying remarkable and absurd. I need a new word for your listeners, but absolutely incredible. I mean, again, not only the fact that in what jurisdiction would a car impounded as evidence be released to anybody, first of all, um, let alone someone who's potentially involved in the crime, right? Never would happen. And then secondly, you know, to, to have that person then engage in activities which are, you know, certainly subjects, suggestive of a cover-up um, and would make that individual a suspect, but would also eliminate all sorts of forensic evidence that could have been gathered from the scene. Uh, I just run out of words to, to talk about that. And then to, to make it worse is the non-disclosure, right? To not disclose that and to not disclose that she was possibly facing criminal charges, um, I think... He said it best himself when he was talking about that the jury would have looked at her quite differently. He was so on point with that. 
but the weird thing about it too is like, uh, let's say so the, uh, that situation took place in an actual, you know, room or a building or whatever. If, if she came in there and sanitized that whole room prior to them even looking at it, they, they would have treated that whole situation differently, it seems like, because it's like, it's the same exact thing, but they seemed to like just brush over like it was nothing, you know, and, and they didn't even, and proud, they didn't literally, didn't even mention it, didn't even hear about it, didn't know nothing about it that she went in there and cleaned the truck out and all that kind of stuff. That came later. And so it's like, had the jury heard that, that would have made a difference because then it had been like, well, she did all these things. She was a suspect and, and, and then she lied. Even said right there that she's lying. She's making stories, all these kind of things. Then the, the, the image of her just being this, you know, the victim and everything and, and, and just, you know, seeing things that, that would have changed because now you have her doing these things that don't make sense for a person to do. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, and this was such a close case to begin with. It sounded like the jury struggled mightily. And of course, if they knew any of these things, it would have had a huge impact upon their deliberations, which, again, points to the fact that when you appeal a case or ask a court to revisit it based upon newly discovered evidence, that's what they want to hear. They want to hear, is it possible or is it probable or is it likely that if the jury had known about this evidence, it could have materially impacted their decision? In this case, of course, that fact alone could have materially impacted the jury's decision. It would have 
bombed her credibility particularly on top of the hypnosis. She would have absolutely no credibility. Two of the juror members who have been interviewed post this conviction and have obviously found out this information, both of them have said that this would have completely changed their opinion. And, and they've said it took seven attempts to come to a final decision um, on guilty or not guilty. Seven attempts for them to all come to the same realisation. And one of the uh, the jurors said that he initially voted not guilty, but he said eventually he came back to her testimony and her, you know, he he just looked at her obviously as this now widow who has got a child that she's going to have to raise by herself and, you know, this, and looked at her and said, you know what, she was so adamant, so adamant about this, you know, that it was this young man that, that committed it and that's basically the only thing that really swayed him the other way. If the hypnosis issue had been even disclosed to the court, okay, she probably doesn't even testify. So think of the gargantuan effect that would have had. Oh, huge. But, you know, the second issue, which is strange, though, when, when a reviewing court is considering, you know, whether it could have changed the outcome, they're, they're not even, they wouldn't even allow juror testimony like that. But it's just a reasonable standard, right? You know, what would reasonably expected to, to influence or affect the outcome of a case? And there's no doubt either of those facts would have the hypnosis, and then the identification, the absconding with the truck, and wiping away the evidence. I mean, I, it's like one of those cases you just don't know where to begin, and it's so sad. You you said it yourself in one of the episodes. You know, if it, if it wasn't so so uh, sad, it'd be laughable because it really is. I mean, you couldn't create a case with more holes if you fed this to a bunch of law students and had them dissected. It would be kind of a hallmark of every problem we have in our system. Every issue that leads to a wrongful conviction is present in this case. And the biggest thing I think we need to look at here is the fact that 20, he's nearly served his entire sentence. He's got two and a half years left on his 30-year sentence. The fact that he is still in prison after all this has come out and that no one has gone, you know what, this has got so many holes in it, it's got to beg the question whether or not someone's looking at this and going, okay, there is obviously issues here, but we've got a bigger issue here, guys, because this was this detective's very first case. How many other cases did he work on past this case? If we overturn this conviction, this is going to open the floodgates of a 20-year career. Like I said, it's a small town, a small mm. county, real conservative, you yeah. know, and, and the last thing I think one of them wants to do is, you know, to question one of their own officers, because I think that right there not only shows that it's a, you know, it's, it's a deeper issue, but that kind of paints the, the whole county in, in a certain light, you know, and I think that they all kind of look out for it. Now, now, this is just my opinion. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not saying that every cop there was that way. I, I seriously doubt I'd probably be like 99% of them were good cops, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it only takes one. So in that sense, you know, and it's, it's, it would look, it, it would look bad if they, you know, this judge was going to be like, okay, I'm going to overturn this, overturn that. You know, if it comes out that this detective falsified stuff to get you put away, then that just opens the floodgates to anyone he's ever been involved with when it comes to an arrest. Yeah. So That's 20 years, 20 plus years of work there too. So. Yeah. It doesn't just open up to for, for retrials and everything or to relook at every case, but then it opens up to lawsuits. I think I feel like a lot of the time it doesn't come down to what's right or wrong. It comes down to, well, hold on, what's going to happen if if we did overturn this? What's the repercussions of, of overturning this? And that's so sad too because... Oh, of course, yeah. Like I said, when I... When we got this evidence, you know, I was okay. Here it is. They're yeah. going to see, and, and to, to you know, to their response on every level has been the opposite. 
and I'm thinking, like I said, I still had this mindset in my head, you know, that 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 justice was a thing in the system, you know, that that the reason they got it that way is because, you know, well, they didn't have this then, or they didn't know this then, but if they know it now, they're going to be able to see through it. But instead, it's the opposite. It's it's like, oh, let's let's band together because it's easier for us to fight it than to admit we're wrong. Well, it's a good question. I mean, that sometimes happens in cases where, and and there's been really well documented instances of this. There was a actually a really good podcast about a detective in New York who engaged in wrongful conduct over a period of years, over decades. And once they kind of the one when the first case fell and they understood, you know, what was going on here, then like dominoes, yeah, all these other convictions fell. Former NYPD detective Joseph Franco is on trial, accused of lying about witnessing drug deals to secure convictions. Prosecutors say the undercover narcotics detective exhibited a pattern of lying about what he saw to secure arrests, sending innocent people to jail and jeopardizing hundreds of cases. Franco made thousands of arrests in his 20-year career. The charges against him led to the scrutiny and vacating of more than 300 drug convictions in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. So it really would take a lot of work, Jack, on your, on your behalf and probably an entire new podcast series. But it'd be really interesting to look at that detective's cases oh, historically. Did he use the same informants? Uh, was there any sort of pattern of, you know, did he ever use his gnosis, hypnosis again? I mean, it really raises a, what we would call a big kettle of fish here. Um, on the other hand, you know, a reviewing court is not necessarily thinking that way. Like the the court that denied his appeal, apparently, I think that was a state court. And I, I don't know whether they're, whether they've had that thought process. But look, th there's all sorts of interesting things that go on in the system. And it's very possible that a judge is, is familiar with the detective. He might be a former prosecutor. You know, there, there's all sorts of links here which really need to be examined. And I hope you do. A show just on that, Jack. Mate, don't give me more work. <laughs> <laughs> so the other the other thing we need to look at with this particular case, not just all the miscarriage of justice and all the wrongdoings of this case, it's also looking at children being tried as adults. This was a 15-year-old child who was um, tried as an adult and it happens a lot. I mean, obviously covering this, this story, I've, I've looked at other stories and I came across a 12-year-old that was given a life sentence for conspiring to murder. And the system seems to go, well, these children are so far gone, they can never be brought back from where, where they are or whatever. And But they're, they're getting sent to adult prisons where they're surrounded by... It, gang members and criminals. And it blows my mind that you can send a 15-year-old, because that's Evaristo was 15 years old, he was sent to a men's prison. He was very lucky. Well, I say lucky, yeah. but I mean, he was taken under the wing by a gang and ended up getting involved in gang stuff inside the prison because it was the only way for him to survive because he's a child. Oh, it's just sick. Yeah, I mean, it varies state by state here in our country. So um, it can be remarkably different from one jurisdiction to another. But um, some places would would incarcerate him in a juvenile facility. Yeah. And then when he reached the majority, they'd put him in, in a real prison, which mm -hmm. is the way to go. Uh, but but certainly there's been a recognition in our system about charging children as adults, about punishing them as adults. There's a lot of great scientific work that's been done by expert witnesses that's been brought to the courtroom about the development of the brain and what a child's capable of doing and the decision-making and the fact that they don't have those capabilities yet. But, but to ignore the fact that these are kids 
12 or 15 or whatever is just mind-blowing because that's an enormous factor. And to try to say that, oh, wow, it's such a severe crime that they're beyond rehabilitation is just ridiculous. We, we know that's not true. So, yeah, I mean, listening to this particular cast really, you know, kind of depressed me a little bit. And uh, I did want to assure your listeners that this really is kind of a, a, a great, you know, case to show all the ways the system can fail. But I want to assure them that, you know, I've been involved in so many other cases where, you know, I felt like, wow, the system works. A jury yeah. found yeah. in favor of my client. They heard this evidence, sometimes a long trial, sometimes complex stuff. And when you win, when you get the not guilty, you you definitely say to yourself, wow, the system really does work. This was really a, a fascinating one. I'm just really hopeful that if you're right, and he was before that a federal appellate court, that, wow, it sounded like you would have a good chance of a vacated conviction, new trial. And I can't imagine this case is ever going to go to trial again, that's for sure, especially after the amount of time he served. Yeah, I mean, you would be hard pushed to, to to see anyone wanting to send him back to a trial when he's only got he's got less than three years left on his sentence anyway. Um, yeah, but but let's touch upon one other thing if we can. So, two huge failures here. You know, the reviewing court you talked about, where the judge you know really wasn't interested in concerning considering the newly discovered evidence, and, and then the the second appeal that's pending right now. Okay, both those cases have prosecutors' offices involved. So the appeal that he talked to you about, where the judge was apparently disinterested and, dis- and dismissive, there was a group of prosecutors assigned to that case, okay? Their job in our system is to do justice, okay? That sounds high-minded, but that's true. Yeah, They actually owe an obligation to the court and to everybody involved in the system to do justice, meaning if they don't believe and the evidence doesn't support a conviction. It's their job to tell the court, look, you know, it wasn't us, but we have grave concerns. Here's why. It's their job to do that. They didn't. It's their job to tell the court, no, we agree the relief he's requested should be granted. So the prosecutor in our system, even though it may seem that way from TV, they have actually a higher duty, a higher calling, and they're they're called upon to do that, to examine the evidence and if it's not there, they're supposed to tell the court, we don't support this conviction. We, we, they could tell the judge, we support the reversal of this conviction. Uh, of course, we know that they're human. There's political factors. And Jack, you might be right. They might be worried about the domino effect of whoever these members of law enforcement detectives were and other cases getting reexamined and thrown out. That, that very well could be possible. Interesting you say because one of the most famous cases made via a, a podcast, serial podcast with Adnan Saeed, in that case the prosecutor, prosecutor did come to court and said, you know what, I, I'm in agreement that this man should not be incarcerated right now. Um, this needs to be further investigated because something's not right here. And they should be applauded. I think, you know, we, we take shots at prosecutors all the time, especially on my side, but oftentimes they do the right thing just like that. I had a, a federal gun case that was supposed to go to trial. This was the last fall. We were on the Friday before the trial. The trial was supposed to start Monday in federal court. And they called and told us to our shock and disbelief that they were dismissing the charges. They had gotten some additional reports, um, including from our expert and some they had conferred with their own expert and they made the decision to dismiss the case 
And I have to applaud them because that's hard to do. You put all this time into it. You've got an indictment. You're supposed to go to trial. It doesn't make anybody look good. And they had the guts to call us and say, we're dismissing this case. It takes, it takes a lot. It really does. So then the question is then, you, you know, you talk about these other prosecutors in, in Evaristo's case. We've spoken about the domino effect and all that sort of stuff. But as you said, their job is justice and to uphold the law. If they're not doing that, and they're still trying to fight this, then who turns around and says, okay, guys, we need to have a chat here because you're trying to fight something that's indefensible. So what's going on? Why, why are we doing that? Because their job then is to continue to look at cases. So if they're doing this with this case, you know, what's to stop them doing it on multiple cases? And- yeah, that's, that's the crazy part. Because, you know, remember, um, prosecutors too are generally, especially in, at the state level, they're generally elected public officials, right? The chief prosecutor of the office. And then that chief prosecutor is overseeing an office, could be two prosecutors, could be 500, right? And so, you know, most in most larger jurisdictions, there's usually a unit that reevaluates cases and looks at innocence cases. There's lots of, uh, you know, more liberal-minded prosecutors that have been put in office across the country. And they typically have something like a conviction integrity unit, which reexamines cases that have been brought to their attention. And again, Jack, you got a problem here because the prosecutors who are arguing to try to uphold this, you know, in some ways they're defending their own offices. Because think about that. We, we don't know much about this detective, so we're just saying hypothetically. But if it's true that detective continue to work on cases for their office for a period of two years or 20 years, right? That's a lot of cases that yeah. might have to be looked at again. So there's all sorts of reasons and motivations why they would want to be fighting to uphold a conviction, which everybody from any objective standard would say is absolutely unsupported. But how you can how you can fight so hard to keep a man behind bars if you know in the back of your head that there's an issue with this case purely because you're worried about the repercussions? I mean, I just don't yeah, understand well, how you can do that. Yeah, well, let's also not discount the fact that, look, prosecutors, much like defense lawyers, you know, we're sometimes true believers, Right. So they, whoever the assigned prosecutors are to defend this case on appeal or on review, they may legitimately believe that the evidence was sufficient, that there's no reason to overturn it. For instance, they may believe this detective from other experiences with him is highly credible and and well thought of. They may believe that the evidence in this case was strong. They, they, They may actually believe that. So just on my side of the bar, from a defense lawyer standpoint, you know, I'll have a case where I absolutely believe my client is either innocent or not guilty. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I just had a case, for instance, in January of this year, 2023, in federal court, two-week trial. We won, not, got the not guilty. And I was talking to some people who were affiliated with some of the agents who testified at the case, and they were a thousand percent sure mm. my client was guilty. They were like, taking shots at us and or the arguments we're making as if we were off base and this person was 100% guilty. So, you know, it's weird how you get entrenched yeah. on your side, whoever you're representing, and you really do become very invested because you really do believe it to be true, right? In this case, we never know the truth. We, we know what we think happened, right? Or suspect, but we never really know. And you find that both sides can have really, really strong attachments to a case 
uh, which can never really be shaken. I always try and stay on the fence with these cases that I talk about, but just looking at this one, I'm just like, for me, this is even worse than um, our Michigan man, Anthony Duke. Like, I mean, you know, it's just I, I, crazy. I, w- I, would, I, would, I would agree with you. Yeah, it's funny because as I was kind of wrapping up the last one, I was thinking, God darn it, I'm going to have to go and, and agree with Jack again, you know, <laughs> um, because you were you were on and your insights on all the issues were were right. It's kind of how they get framed in in our court system when, when there's an injustice. The things you were hitting upon are really kind of the Achilles heels sometimes in cases. I do want to take the last minute of your show, though, to alienate all your all your listeners in Australia. Can we do that for a minute? Go for it, mate. Alienate okay, away. So, so my neighbor, I think I might have told you this already, but my neighbor down the street is from New Zealand. Oh, yeah. His name is Hamish. His name is Hamish. So apparently there's a lot of tension apparently between you New Zealanders and you Aussies, right? <laughs> so what he said I should bring up to you is this famous or infamous incident from the 80s with someone using an underhanded cricket throw. Oh, you, come you, on. That's what he said I should bring up. I, I Can you do like a show on that? Explain to the American listeners what the heck we're talking about. Oh, uh, so it was a famous cricket game, and they needed a certain amount of runs. So in cricket, you, 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 it's a run basis. You know, I, I'm not going to explain cricket to the American audience, but basically, they needed a certain amount of runs off this final bowl of this ball, and the Australian bowler did an underarm bowl, so that the the cricket, the, so that he couldn't basically get the the um, the runs that he needed. And New Zealand's only hope now is a six off the last ball for a tie. Long discussion. Well, it looks to me as if they're going to bow underarm off the last ball. Rod Marsh is saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bow an underarm delivery on the last ball and bow it along the ground and be sure that it has not been hit for six. The umpires have been told... The batsmen have been told, and this is possibly a little bit disappointing. So people are saying it's unsportsmanlike, uh, but would you know, you, would you would you would you concede there's any unsportsmanlike throwing it underhand or no? As you know from a trial court situation, uh, Mr. Leonard, you, you you do what you need to do in order to get the win. Wow, <laughs> sounds like you're justifying underhanded prosecutorial conduct just to get the conviction. Wow, that's really changed the whole focus. Um, well, I, I'm glad that. You know, we could get that, we'd vet that, although yeah. maybe your listeners from Australia would never allow me back on the show. So I'm sorry, everybody, but it's just a great story. Actually, it's, it's, it's amazing, actually, you say Hamish is from New Zealand. There's a very, uh, very good podcast uh, called Who the Hell is Hamish? about a, uh, a guy from New Zealand who was a scam artist who called himself, oh, really? <laughs> called himself Hamish. So just be careful, Mr. Leonard. Did he, did he re- relocate to River Forest, Illinois? I, I, I don't know. Possibly. I mean, he, he did disappear. Jack, we're, we're, sp- we're spawning so many new podcasts. By the minute. We, better, we better stop. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, those Kiwis, mate. Watch them. Watch them. <laughs> all right. I mean, he's he's going to be tuning into your next show. Okay? Oh, good, good. I appreciate it. Man, I need all the listeners I can get, so spread the word. Uh, look, as, as always, Mr. Leonard, uh, truly appreciate your time and insights on this particular case. And uh, look, I would like to say that I'll bring you one that you can disagree with me on, but uh, that's not the plan. The plan is from here on you're, forward. You're, is you're, to... Yeah, you're, you're doing a great job. And, and I would just recommend maybe a two-mile run a couple times a week. Yeah, okay? no, great. Thank you. I, I'll, I'll get onto that. Bye, my friend. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Uh, thank you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. 
As always, a huge thank you to Michael for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to chat with us about this case. And, of course, looking forward to chatting with him after our next story. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Network.